John chapter 11, verse 36. I've been dragging my feet on maybe the greatest miracle that the Lord performed in the Bible, but we'll see it tonight. Enough is enough. We've got to get Lazarus out of that tomb. So you'll see this tonight. But here's what it says, verse 36. So the Jews, now these are folks who had come from Jerusalem and they traveled uh, over the Mount of Olives to Bethany. It's only two, three miles, easy to get to. So the Jews were saying, see how he loved him. And uh, it's because the Lord Jesus was crying. That's what the previous verse says. He wept. And the Jews, some of whom were saved, most of whom were unsaved, still saw the effect of all this on the Lord. They didn't know much about this Lord. They knew he was unique, special in some senses. Uh, they knew he loved Lazarus and his sisters, but you know, sometimes talk is cheap. And so the Lord was expressing his love here in visible fashion and was weeping along with everybody else and the Jews discerned from it how much the Lord loved him. They didn't even know the half of it. He was weeping tears that went way beyond the immediate circumstance. In fact, he knows what he's going to do with Lazarus. I don't think he's weeping for Lazarus because he knows soon he's going to raise Lazarus from the dead. I think he's weeping because of the throes of death and what it does to all of us, the passing of a loved one, how it hurts. Uh, the Lord knows that what leads up to it is human sin, he knows that death is kind of an intruder. It isn't God's plan. He's the giver of life. This is not what he built into creation order way back in Genesis. Sin is the cause of death. And look at what death, and the passing of loved ones, does to people. And the Lord wept over this because he, he loves us and he, he doesn't want to see us go through all of this. And so they may be thinking he's only weeping over what happened to Lazarus and his sisters, but his weeping goes way, way beyond. He's weeping for folks not like Lazarus. Lazarus believed in him <laughs> and will have life. But what about those who don't? Uh, the Lord Jesus laid claim to this. He said, I'm the resurrection and the life. That's what he said. It was a great I am statement. Those who accepted it, will be raised up from life. Those are not the ones to weep over uncontrollably and without hope, but for those most of whom were in the crowd and in the world, untold millions of people who have rejected the offer of Jesus to live again, uh, for those who have refused by faith to enter into union with he who is resurrection and life, uh, the Lord Jesus wept over them. He takes no pleasure in the lostness of lost humanity. He wishes for none to perish, you see, but for all to be saved. So they don't even know the depth of his pain at this point and his love for humankind for whom he himself suffered and died. This all caused him to weep. But, verse 37 some of them said, could not this man, <laughs> see, that's all they know of this rabbi Jesus. He's, he's a man. They have no idea at present that he's, he's the God in the form of man. He's a man. He's special in some ways, but 
He's a man. Could not this man who opened the eyes of the blind man? This Jesus is a man only, and somehow he had some special ability to give sight to another man who happened to be blind. Could not this man, Jesus, who opened the eyes of this other man, this blind man, could he have not kept this man, Lazarus, uh, from dying? They're, they're, they're being quite logical here. He, this, this man, Jesus, who had the capacity to give sight to one born blind, it was congenital blindness. This one who had the capacity to do that, surely he would have the capacity, just one step away, they were thinking, to pronounce life upon this Lazarus so that Lazarus would not even have had to experience death. Now, you know what? They're remembering this outstanding healing miracle of the Lord Jesus, and maybe you can remember it too, it was way back in John chapter 9. From their point of view, it was months ago, but they remember it like it was yesterday. There was this man, he could not see, but this Jesus, the God-man, could see him. And Jesus went to him, and I know this is unusual, but this is what the text says. He spat on the ground, the Lord Jesus did, and he mixed it up. It was uh, mixed the spittle with the dirt. It became kind of a clay. He applied it, you know, to the man's eyes, and he told the man, now make your way to the pool of Siloam. Cleanse yourself there, and thus you will gain your sight. The man, by faith, did all this and saw for the first time in his life what a miracle this was. Well, it wasn't the mud that did it, and it wasn't the pool of Siloam that did it. It was this Jesus, this unusual rabbi Jesus who did it. Well, that miracle caused quite a stir, and so even months after it occurred, these who observed that miracle uh, said, could not this man who opened the eyes of the blind man have kept this man also from dying? Look, they couldn't reconcile Jesus' love for this man and Jesus' power to do miracles. They couldn't reconcile that with the fact that the man died. Now, I don't want to be too hard on them. We have the same problem even though we know him. It's very difficult. We, we worship and, and serve a God who has both the power and the will to heal and to remove infirmities and all the rest. And yet in many cases, these things come our way. And when you and I are afflicted in various ways, when a loved one takes ill, passes, who knows what? Let's be honest, we have a hard time reconciling this as well. Oh God, you indicate you love me and I do not doubt your infinite power and yet why am I in this situation? What's up? Well, uh, that's what happens. Can I tell you what helps me when that sort of thing happens to me? I reflect back on the Father's offering of the Son and I persuade myself in my own mind to go from the greater to the lesser. If the father did not withhold his greatest, then how will he not also, this is actually scripture, that's what it says, how will he not also with him, with his only begotten son, how will he not also with him freely give us all things? I don't understand his ways, especially during difficult times, but this really helps me. It's an appeal to reason. How could it be that the father who loves me and has power and yet has permitted me to go through this situation, how could it be that his love and power are compromised? It can't be. The evidence is if he did not withhold his most prized possession, his 
only begotten one of a kind son for one such as me, how will he not also with him freely give us all things? Maybe that will be helpful to you as well. It's an argument, if you will, from the greater to the lesser. Anyway, they're struggling over this. And so in verse 38, Jesus, again, being deeply moved within. Again, he was previously, here he is again. Remember I made the case that the phrase deeply moved means a state of agitation, even approaching anger? What's he angry about? I, I suggested to you that he was angry once again at sin and its consequences. He was angry at Satan who moves in. He's a tempter, he tempts us to sin. And then he relishes the consequence which comes our way. We die spiritually and even literally physically. And the Lord is angered by all this. He was before. Here he is again. Jesus again, being deeply moved within, came to the tomb. Now the way they did things then, they would hollow out oftentimes, and sometimes uh, in the stone, um, a, uh, an area was already hollowed out by natural processes and in those hollowed out areas they would bury people. So Jesus, being deeply moved again within, came to the tomb, it was a cave, and a stone was, was lying against it. They would roll a stone to cover up the entrance, you see, to this tomb. And um, he was deeply, he was deep. I mean, here he is at the threshold of the place, giving stark evidence to the consequence of sin. It's a tomb. Lazarus died. He was entombed. And the Lord Jesus knows it doesn't have to be this way. It shouldn't have been this way. And he is so agitated and angered by death. He came to wage war against it. He's going to win, you'll see in this text. And you know he has ultimately won the battle against, against death. And so... Uh, he's affected by this, and he said in verse 39, remove the stone. So I was thinking about this. <laughs> how could it be that the one who is about to raise a man from death, how could it be that he couldn't just say to the stone, stone, be gone? <laughs> I mean, he could. That would have been a lesser miracle than raising a man entombed from the state of deadness. But he chose not to do this. In fact, he commanded that others would lay their hands on the stone and move it themselves. Why? Well, he wanted them to be involved and to have a hands-on experience because this is going to be probably the most outstanding miracle in the Bible at the hands of the Lord Jesus. And there would be some, not there, not eyewitnesses, who would say something like, it never happened. This is a hoax. But those who moved the stone smelled the stench of the decomposed body of Lazarus, realized when the stone was moved away, they smelled, they saw a dead body. It was no apparition nor hoax. And so they would be eyewitnesses to the miracle by themselves moving the stone. Well, Martha, she's the more, um, oh, active sister. Her temperament was such that she is prone to take the initiative more than Mary, who seems to be a little more reflective. Martha, the sister of the deceased, said to him, Lord, by this time there'll be a stench, for he has been dead four days. Now that's good that she gave that information to the Lord, because I'm sure he didn't know about this. So Jesus said to her in verse 40, did I not say to you uh, that if you believe, you'll see the glory of 
of God. There will be the glory of God. He will be glorified. But uh, for us to have a personal experience of it requires faith. You see? So our own faith, it doesn't limit God. It it minimizes our experience of his glory. Now the Lord Jesus, you'll see, is going to have no trouble raising the dead. I think what's more challenging, however, uh, for him is to increase our faith. (laughs) that's a bigger challenge even than raising the dead. And so that's what he wants to do here with Martha. Her face, she's looking at the circumstances. He's been entombed. My brother's been dead for four days and there's a stench of the decomposing body and all the rest. And so, yeah, the Lord has to help Martha develop more confidence in him, you see. And so they removed the stone, verse 41. And then Jesus raised his eyes and said, Father, I thank you uh, that you have heard me. Do you know the standard ancient Jewish prayer posture was to raise one's hands and eyes and look to heaven? There is not a biblically legislated prayer posture. So I'm not suggesting you take on this posture, uh, but I'm not suggesting you don't. I hope we're past the day when in a congregation such as ours, if someone stands and raises their hands, I hope we're past the day when we think that's not appropriate. In fact, it's a more biblical prayer posture than bowing one's head and closing one's eyes. Now that's an acceptable prayer posture. It happens to be one I am more comfortable with, but if you're more comfortable with a more expressive uh, indication of your communion and love for the Lord, please do it. Sometimes people say, does it distract you when I do such and such? No, it does not. Do what God leads you to do. That's important. So Jesus raised his hands aloft. He looked up to heaven and he prayed to the Father out loud. And he said, "Um, Father, I thank you that you have heard me. Why is he praying out loud? Is it so that the Father could hear him? No, it's so that the people in the crowd would hear him. And what are they hearing? They're hearing how the son has such intimate communion with the father. They're hearing how the son and the father are the same and have the same plan and the same intention and how they're seeing the intimacy with which the son addresses the Father, And so he prays out loud so they can hear. And here's what he says, verse 42. I knew that you always hear me, but because of the people standing around. You see, he's saying something and they are even hearing what he's saying. Because of all these people, Father, who are standing around, I said it. I said it out loud so that not you could hear, that they could hear so that they may believe you sent me. He is a attributing what is about to happen specifically to the Father. They must know that Jesus is the Father's Son. He is not an independent agent. The Father and the Son are one. They share the same purposes and intent. They're distinct 
purpose, persons and yet they are absolutely the same. Those who put at odds the Father and the Son are missing the whole point. When you listen to prayers like this, that the Lord uttered, you find out, oh my goodness, this is a glimpse into the fellowship with which the Lord and the Father enjoyed each other even before time was. I can see why the Lord said on the cross, oh God, why have you forsaken me? I think that hurt him more even than the physical ramifications of the crucifixion. He enjoyed such close and unbroken fellowship with the Father for it to be broken by him carrying our sin. Oh, that was torturous for him because this is the kind of communion he had with the Father. Make no mistake about it. He was trying to prove to the people, I'm not just someone who popped up. I and the Father are one. And so a miracle is about to happen here of resurrection. But wait, that's not unique. The Lord had already resurrected the daughter of a man named Jairus. On another occasion, he raised from the dead the son of a widow who lived in a place called Nain. So doing this sort of thing is not new, but those two resurrection miracles were different than what we're about to read here because in those cases, the two deceased people had just died. I'm not minimizing the miracle, but they just died and boom, they were raised up from death. But boy, this is different. Lazarus had been entombed for four days. Now the Jewish custom when someone dies was to bury as quickly as you could. So he died four days ago. And body can really be in a fairly advanced state of decomposition after four days, especially in that part of the world. I mean, it's hot, folks. And so uh, this is a unique kind of a, thing. His body was decomposing. His own sister said it, it will smell. And verse 43, when he, the Lord, had said these things, he cried out. He did so with a loud voice, and that's a good thing. Otherwise, he wouldn't have been able to get through to Lazarus. Oh, no, 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 no. That's not why he cried out with a loud voice. Let me make a suggestion. I think he did because he wanted to remove any suggestion that what he was uttering was a kind of a magical incantation. See, this was, uh, this was common to occult practitioners, witches and so on. A, uh, a secret formula whispered, only the initiated could be made privy to it. And the Lord wanted to make sure what you're about to see is not magic. There's no wizardry involved. What you're about to see is from Almighty God. There's nothing to hide about this. So he shouts out, and boy, these are magnificent three words, Lazarus, come forth. I want to tell you something. Those words could only be uttered by the Lord Jesus. Nobody else who ever was nor will be has the authority to utter those words if you think about it. Um, no founder of any world religion uh, could say what the Lord Jesus just said. Buddha could not do it. Mohammed could not do this. Only Jesus could say to a dead man, come forth. Only Jesus could say, come out of the grave. And only Jesus could say, this is the point, this is the way out of death. 
Nobody else could offer that way. Jesus, who is the way, could, but nobody else could. Don't put Jesus in the same category with anybody else. Jesus is the way out from the irreversible hold of death. Now, folks, if Jesus Christ can only provide for us here before we die, but has nothing for us after we die, then we are hoping in him in vain. Even Paul said this in 1 Corinthians 15, verse 19, if we have hope in Christ in this life only, we are of all men to be most pitied. Well, don't worry about it. Our hope placed in the resurrection power of the Lord Jesus Christ is not hope placed in vain. In fact, Paul goes on to say in this very passage, 1 Corinthians 15, the next verses, beginning of verse 20, Paul said, but now Christ has been raised from the dead. I love this part. The first fruits of those who are asleep. Not death. Death is permanent. Sleep is temporary. For since by a man, you'll see in this text, that man is Adam. For since by a man came death, by a man, that second man is Jesus. By a man also came the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam all die, so also in Christ all will be made alive. In Christ all will be made alive. But each in his own order. Christ the first fruits. That makes sense. After that, those who are Christ's at his coming. Do you realize it could be us? Christ, the first fruits from death, and then those who are alive at his coming. It could be us. I don't know that, but it surely could. Then comes the end when he hands over the kingdom to God. And to his God and Father when he has abolished all rule, all authority and power. And nobody here will regret that. What a sorry shape the world is in. Rule, authority and power, both demonic and temporal. Ungodly world leaders carving it up for their own evil devices. Not a one of us will regret when it's all over. The Lord hands it all over to his father, when he has abolished all rule and all authority and power, for he must reign until he has put all his enemies under his feet. The last enemy that will be abolished is death. There's more to Jesus than just what he could do for us here. The reason we worship him is because of what he could do for us, not only here, but there after death. And as a foreshadowing of it all, we read in verse 44, the man, well, you know his name now is Lazarus, who had died came forth. At the tomb, Jesus fought death and won. Jesus plundered the grave. And in essence, as a foreshadowing, uh, the Lord is demonstrating he would soon defeat death completely and entirely. Now, Lazarus, the text says, was bound hand and foot with wrappings, and his face was wrapped around with a cloth. This was the Jewish style of burial. There would be two separate garments. One would be placed over the head and 
face, kind of a napkin, a towel, something like that. Then from shoulders down, there would be uh, strips of cloth binding the man's arms, hands, or the deceased's arms, hands, and, and feet. If you can get this picture, as I was thinking about this, I, I asked the question, how did Lazarus come forth? I mean, he is all wrapped up. And I have no answer, maybe you have one, except don't you see the whole thing is a miracle. The whole thing is a supernatural event. Maybe Lazarus, upon the Lord's command, come forth. He just floated above the ground, I don't know. But I had another question. Why didn't the Lord Jesus, who has the capacity to revive a man from death, why didn't the Lord Jesus just command that Lazarus' burial clothes just fall off? He, he, he doesn't do that. In fact, it says, Jesus said to them, unbind him and let him go. He wanted others, once again, to have a hands-on experience. As with the stone, those who removed the stone, those who removed the stone could say, we were eyewitnesses. There's no apparition or hoax. We saw an actual smelly old decomposed body. And here, too, those who laid hands literally on Lazarus to remove the grave clothes could say, there's no ghost or apparition. We were not hallucinating. We felt a body as we were taking off these burial clothes. You know, the Lord was buried similarly. Uh, but whereas Lazarus will one day need his burial clothes again, uh, uh, when the Lord Jesus rose from death, he left his burial clothes there. Totally different resurrections. You know what's kind of sad? I don't want to put a damper on this story, but Lazarus is going to die again. He's going to die twice. He died once. The Lord raised him, but he died again. He needs his burial clothes. When the Lord Jesus rose up from death, he left his burial clothes behind. Folks, can I tell you something? I think I am going to die if the Lord tarries, but only once. <laughs> I, I'm not going to die. What about you? I mean, once is enough. I believe I'm going to die and because Jesus is the resurrection and the life and because he won victory over death for me. I believe I'm going to leave my burial clothes behind. <laughs> and once I'm raised up from a state of physical deadness, that's it for death. Death is over and done with. I enter into the presence of the Lord to be in the literal presence of he who is the resurrection and the life forevermore. This is serious business. I hope you could say the same thing that I just did. Now, earlier you shared your thoughts about why Jesus perhaps allowed Lazarus to die when in fact he could have healed him even by pronouncing healing upon him even from afar. Uh, can I offer you this? I think he allowed Lazarus to die, to go through all this, so that he, the Lord Jesus, could reveal something to the people that they needed to know. And it was this. It was that Jesus has the power to raise up people from death. He really is who he claimed to be, the resurrection and the life. So I think he deliberately delayed in coming until it was clear that Lazarus was truly dead. Do you remember I told you the rabbis had this notion? When someone dies, that person's, we call it neshuma or soul, hovers around the deceased body for three days, looking for an opportunity to re-enter the body and thus resuscitate the deceased. 
Now, in keeping with that notion, for which there is no biblical basis, but in keeping with that notion, I think that's one of the reasons why the Lord waited until Lazarus was dead, not one, two, three, four days after the rabbinical notion of the possibility of being resuscitated by the spirit just of the person just entering into him. That was all removed. It was four days. I think the Lord then, he used something the Lord did. It was something seen to help the people be able to think about something unseen. What was seen is Lazarus being resurrected from the dead. They all saw this. And what was this which was seen pointing to that was otherwise unseen? It's this, folks. This Lord Jesus who has the capacity to raise one from physical death has the will and the capacity and the authority to raise one from spiritual deadness and grant that one eternal living. Anyone could say it, but the Lord Jesus manifested his capacity to do so by allowing Lazarus to die, so he had the opportunity to raise him up from death. Folks, what happened at Bethany on that day truly was an incredible miracle. A man was raised from the dead. Even today, with all of our medical advancement, this cannot be done. Nobody can bring, I don't care what doctors and medical facility, nobody can bring back someone to life after he or she has been dead for several days. And so what Jesus did was an incredible physical miracle, but I think it's only meant to point to something even greater. It's his power to do something even more incredible. It is to give new life to those of us who otherwise are dead in our sins. Only Jesus could do that. So I read to you this passage. I'll bet you're familiar with it. Ephesians chapter two, listen. And you were, past tense, dead in your trespasses and sins in which you formerly walked according to the course of this world, according to the prince of the power of the air, of the spirit that is now working in the sons of disobedience, among them, we too all formerly lived in the lusts of our flesh, indulging the desires of the flesh and of the mind, and were by nature children of wrath, even as the rest. But God, being rich in mercy because of his great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our transgressions, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved and raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus so that in the ages to come he might show the surpassing riches of his grace and kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. And how do I know all that is true? Look what he did for Lazarus. If he has the capacity to perform that physical miracle, he has the will and the capacity to raise up those of us who are spiritually dead so that we can be seated at the right hand of the throne of grace wherein we will live with the Lord Jesus Christ forevermore. As he lifted Lazarus from physical death, he can lift us poor sinners from spiritual death so that we have the new potentiality to live new spiritual lives in him forevermore. Isn't your life, you being a Christian, isn't it different? 
You know what a spiritually dead person can do on behalf of himself or herself about the same thing a physically dead person can do? Nothing. A spiritually dead person can't find meaning in life, can't find a reason for being, has no answers to life, does not know why he or she is here or where you're going. A spiritually dead person cannot ever make himself or herself right with God. And this almighty God who has the capacity to raise a person like Lazarus from physical death has the capacity to raise folks like you and I from a state of spiritual deadness so that we could be alive to Christ. Well, as we close, I want to ask you a question. Which do you think is more incredible? A savior God who raises the dead or a savior God who weeps? (laughs) Both are surely incredible. We are rightly amazed by the power of Jesus, as we saw with Lazarus, but I hope we should even be more amazed by the emotions of Jesus. Here, he who is the one who has no beginning nor end, who existed in eternity past and evermore shall be, he who is the one who is dependent on no one, sees the human condition and weeps. He takes no pleasure in our deadness and lostness. He has no desire for anybody to be dead, but for all to be, for all to be saved. And he's so concerned that he weeps. He's different than anybody else, any pretender to the throne, distant, detached. No, this Lord Jesus weeps. Uh, could I invite you to do something? Don't give Jesus uh, a reason to weep over you. Say even tonight, Lord Jesus, weep over me no more. I sense your tears, your concern, and your compassion even for one such as me. It's my own sin which has erected a barrier between you and me, and I am coming to believe the consequence therein is spiritual separation from you now, which will lead to ultimate physical and spiritual separation from you on into eternity. This is the consequence of my own sin. And you won't have it. You don't want it to be that way. You're not clenching your fist at me. You're not angry. You weep over my lostness. You know what I'm going through. You know I'm empty. You know the things that come from you I do not have. Love, joy, peace, goodness, kindness, self-control. I don't have any of those commodities Oh, you know I've tried in various ways. I've done through, so through the accumulation of stuff, through the pursuit of popularity and or pleasure, but I'm empty. I'm like a dead person on the inside. It's kind of like a soulish, spiritual deadness. Maybe you're coming to the conclusion that this God doesn't relish in it. He doesn't say, what is that to me? He weeps because he doesn't want you to go through that. Maybe you'll say, weep no more, Lord Jesus. You who rose up from death, come into my life, granting me forgiveness of my sin, because that will remove the barrier between you and I. Sin is a barrier, because you're holy and I am not. Oh God, having removed the barrier of my sin, the penalty thereof, because you satisfied it for me on the cross, you who are alive up from the grave, you arose. Would you come into my life and give me new life? Make me to be so alive to you 
that my mind and my heart and my will reflected as Lazarus was a visible evidence of your resurrection power. Make me to be that way. Oh, God, weep no more. I do not want you, Lord Jesus. I don't want your death to be in vain on my behalf. I wish you would, I wish you would say to the Lord Jesus, weep no more. Come into my life. Save me. I am ready to be quickened in my spirit. I'm ready for new life here. I look forward to eternal life with you forevermore. Lord Jesus, I pray, as only you can. Look, we're speaking to you because we believe you're a risen Savior. First fruits from death, alive, so that all who believe in you may live. Lord Jesus, we're speaking to you because you live, you hear. You are concerned, you have authority and will to save us. We're praying that there be not one person who leave here tonight in a state of spiritual deadness, separation, hopelessness, in their sin. Instead, we pray, oh God, you who weep over that very person would have cause to rejoice with that very person who says, come into my life, Lord Jesus, forgive my sin, which has separated and caused a death. Make me to be alive. You who have offered me a pardon by your own crucifixion. Risen Savior, live in me. Raise me up from spiritual death so that when I experience, if I experience physical death, I have assurance of being raised up from that state of affairs to live with you forevermore. Thank you, Lord Jesus, that you have done everything to win victory over the last enemy. It's not the environment. <laughs> It's death. Thank you that you've done everything to win victory over death for us. I pray what you've done would not be in vain for anyone here tonight. This we pray in Jesus' name, amen.